Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. Hello, I'm Nate, and this is Timeline Tapes, the podcast made by the YouTube channel Timeline. Here is where we take the documentaries from our channel and turn them into podcasts. This week, we're bringing you part two of World War II and the Man of Steel, one of the most intriguing films on our channel. It looks at the life of Georgian-born Soviet leader Joseph Stalin, and how his willingness to compromise meant he gained power and allies in the most unlikely places. The voice of the episode is Professor David Reynolds, and if you missed the first half, you can just head to our podcast feed to catch up. When Nazi Germany invaded Russia in June 1941, the Soviet regime under Joseph Stalin teetered on the brink of collapse. By December, the Germans had driven the Russians back over 600 miles and were at the gates of Moscow. What followed is one of the most remarkable turnarounds in military history. Three years later, the Russians were at the gates of Berlin. This film is about why Stalin would eventually emerge as the big winner from World War II and what the cost would be for Russia, Europe and the world. Stalin had to learn to bend and compromise in order to win. He would even enter into perhaps the most bizarre shotgun marriage in diplomatic history, sealed with an arch capital during a drunken evening in the Kremlin. Stalin had a strange, almost seductive charm. Winston Churchill, an unremitting enemy of communism, responded with respect, at times even affection, towards the man he himself nicknamed Uncle Joe. This is the enduring mystery of Stalin, the friendly uncle and the man of steel, a titan of the Second World War and a monster of the 20th century who got away with it. Stalin made a critical decision soon after the German invasion. Much of Soviet industry lay west of Moscow, easy pickings for Hitler. So the Russians dismantled some 1,500 factories, put them on trains together with workers and families, and then rebuilt them east of the Ural Mountains. Over a million railway wagons were needed. Placed end to end, it was estimated, they would have stretched right across the country, from Poland to the Pacific. What made ordinary Russians, soldiers and civilians, struggle so tenaciously? Here's one story which I think captures the spirit of Russian resistance in 1941. 
Fleeing the German onslaught on the road to Moscow, the war correspondent Vasily Grossman was given shelter by an old peasant woman. She used up her tiny stock of supplies, welcoming him with a good meal and a roaring fire, all the while singing songs. She told Grossman of her son fighting at the front and of her nightmares. The devil came to me last night and sank his claws into my hand. I started to pray, but the devil took no notice. So I told him to fuck off, and then he did disappear. Grossman was very struck by this typically Russian mix of generosity and bloody-mindedness. If we do win in this terrible, cruel war, it will be because there are such noble hearts in our nation. They illuminate all our people with a miraculous light. For this old woman, and for millions of Russians, their defiance was rooted in a deeper sense of homeland, of Russia's history and faith that stretched back long before Lenin and Stalin. One popular wartime poem tapped into this mood, imagining the ghosts of the old religious Russia coming to the aid of Stalin's godless communists. It was as if, at the graves in each Russian village, guarding the living with the sign of the cross, our ancestors were gathering to pray for their grandsons, who no longer believe in a god. With customary opportunism, Stalin responded to this resurgent sense of history. And Russians in turn responded to Stalin, or more precisely to the heroic image of Stalin projected by the regime. The Man of Steel, the modern Tsar, became a symbol for the Russian people of their determination to resist the new invaders. Stalin accelerated his transformation into nationalist leader. His speech for the Revolution Day parade in November invoked Lenin, but also the Russian heroes who'd repulsed earlier invaders, including the Tsarist General Kutuzov, hero of the war against Napoleon. The troops paraded through Red Square and marched straight on to the front. Moscow was now under almost nightly attack from the Luftwaffe. The Kremlin's air raid shelters had not yet been completed. So for a few days, Stalin shared the ordeal of ordinary Muscovites, dossing down in his greatcoat alongside them in one of the metro stations. By December the 2nd, 1941, German advance units were only a dozen miles from the Kremlin. Its domes and spires glinted in the pale sun. One German medical officer reached a tram stop on the road into the city. There was an old wooden bin attached to the wall. I felt inside and dragged out a handful of old tram tickets. We picked out the Cyrillic letters, which by now we knew spelt Moskva. But there was to be no easy ride into Moscow for those German soldiers. This vast replica of a tank trap marks the end of the line for them. The point where Barbarossa, once molten fire, literally froze up. Temperatures were now 30 below. Tank and plane engines had to be heated for hours before they could be started. Many German soldiers lacked winter clothing, even proper gloves. Victims of Hitler's hubris about a quick victory. Seizing their chance, Stalin and his chief of staff, Zhukov, 
now planned a dramatic counterattack. Before dawn on December the 5th, Soviet troops ploughed into the frozen Nazi pincers around Moscow. Although the Germans weren't routed, they were driven back a hundred miles. At last for the Russians, after six months of defeat, a first victory. But could they keep it up? Zhukov knew the limits of his army. He wanted a targeted strike to save Moscow. But Stalin was now on a roll. Though no general, he'd apparently done what Kutuzov could not do, save Russia without sacrificing Moscow. Unlike Hitler when he launched Barbarossa, Stalin now believed his enemy to be ripe for destruction. Facing around his study in the Kremlin, Stalin told his generals, the Germans are taken aback by their defeat near Moscow. Now is just the time to mount a general offensive. Zhukov protested that he hadn't the resources to advance in this way all along the front. Stalin would have none of this. Our task is not to give the Germans a breathing space. We must drive them westward without a halt. This will ensure the complete defeat of the Nazi forces in 1942. According to Zhukov, nobody else spoke up. The dictator had browbeaten his generals. The all-out New Year offensive went ahead and Stalin, with customary vindictiveness, crossed Zhukov's name off the list of those to be honoured for saving Moscow. Along the whole front, the great Russian counter-offensive, which Stalin personally worked out in every detail, springs to life. British newsreels recorded Stalin's great offensive. The heroic Russians seemed to be the only ones effectively fighting the Germans. Britain was still on the back foot. And America, though at last in the war, was in disarray after Japan's surprise attack at Pearl Harbor. Yet in early 1942, Stalin was sniffing victory and, like Hitler, it went to his head. Having lost Eastern Europe in 1941, he was now determined to get it back. He told Britain and America that Russia's rewards for victory should include Eastern Poland and the Baltic states, the very territories signed over to him in 1939 as part of his pact with Hitler. Now he wanted his allies to endorse the same dirty deal. This obsessive haggling for territorial gain may seem bizarrely premature to us now, but I think it makes sense if we remember that Stalin, still on a high from the success of the winter counteroffensives, thought the war might be over within a few months. So he was trying to strengthen his hand for an upcoming peace conference. Russian friendship was vital for Britain. But handing over Poland and the Baltic states to the Soviets, just as Hitler had done, seemed utterly immoral. After anguished debate, the British government dug in. So Stalin applied direct pressure. He sent Molotov, his tough guy foreign minister, to Britain to press Russia's case for territory. Early one morning in May, a powerful four-engine Soviet bomber came in to land at a northern aerodrome. Out of it stepped the Soviet People's Commissar for Foreign Affairs, Monsieur Molotov, clad in heavy fur-lined flying kit. Number in front of the newsreel cameras, it was all smiles. But behind the scenes, Molotov did not prove an easy guest. 
conscious, perhaps, that 20 years earlier, his host, Churchill, had tried to strangle Bolshevism in its cradle. Molotov and his aides slept with revolvers under their pillows. Their rooms were also guarded round the clock by grim Russian matriarchs dressed in black. Molotov was notorious for his hard-nosed negotiating style, but he couldn't get his way on carving up Eastern Europe. Churchill would only offer a general treaty of alliance and no promises about territory. Molotov cabled the British offer to Stalin contemptuously. We consider this treaty unacceptable, as it is an empty declaration which the Soviet Union does not need. Molotov assumed that Stalin would agree, but back in the Kremlin, the mood was changing, as bad news filtered in from the front. Buoyed up by overconfidence, and once again riding roughshod over generals like Zhukov, in May 1942, Stalin had ordered a reckless new assault to recapture Kharkov, second city of the Ukraine. After a week of fighting, Khrushchev phoned to report that the Soviet forces at Kharkov had driven themselves into a trap and were being encircled by the Germans. Stalin refused even to take the call, put down the phone, as if he knows what he's talking about. It was like June 1941 all over again. Only after a quarter of a million men were captured and 1,200 tanks written off did Stalin face the facts. With his regime on the ropes once more, Stalin called off the offensive and rethought the priorities of his diplomacy. Stalin dropped his demands for territory. What mattered now was getting the Allies to mount a second front, a British and American assault on mainland Europe to divert German forces from Russia. Stalin cabled Molotov in London. He told him to stop protesting, sign the treaty with Britain and firm up the Allies' commitment to a second front. Molotov was flabbergasted, but the man whom the British regarded as the hardliner grovelled abjectly to his boss. I shall act in accordance with the directive. I believe the new draft treaty can have positive value. I fail to appreciate it at once. At the Foreign Office, the Grand Alliance was entered into as signatures were appended to the document by the representatives of the high contracting parties. Full understanding was also reached with regard to the creating this year of a second front in Europe. In mid-1942, Hitler resumed his offensive. The new campaign was directed southeast to seize Russia's oil in the Caucasus. But Stalin still assumed that Hitler's real goal was Moscow. Thanks to Stalin's misplaced deployments, the German advance was even swifter than in 1941. By the end of the summer, the swastika was flying over the highest point in the Caucasus. The Red Army had lost another 600,000 prisoners and thousands more tanks. The pattern was the same as 1941. Armoured pincers and mass encirclements. Rants from Stalin about not one step back. And new orders for blocking units to shoot those trying to flee. In July 1942, with the Red Army collapsing, Stalin was once again desperate for help. Stalin now really needed Churchill to deliver on the promise of a second front in Europe in 1942. But nothing seemed to be happening. Stalin sensed that he was being betrayed by the old enemy. Personal and secret, 
Premier Stalin to Premier Churchill. In spite of the agreed communique concerning the urgent tasks of creating a second front in 1942, the British government postpones this matter until 1943. Relations between London and Moscow were reaching crisis point. As the German juggernaut rolled east, rumours swirled around about Soviet capitulation and peace talks. A new Nazi-Soviet pact would be a disaster for Britain. For the British, Stalin's military blunders opened up a terrifying scenario. Churchill's chief of staff, Alan Brook, noted in his diary, while we are talking, the Germans are walking through the Caucasus. Our defenses in Iraq and Persia are lamentably weak. If the Germans smashed through the Caucasus to Iraq and Persia, they would grab most of Britain's oil. Neutral Turkey would probably throw in its lot with Hitler, perhaps even allowing a link-up with Rommel's army in Egypt, now steamrolling towards the Suez Canal. The Germans might even join forces with the Japanese to threaten India from the west as well as the east. Nightmares, perhaps, but all too real and vivid at the time. In 1941, Russia's collapse threatened to expose the British Isles to the Nazi war machine. In 1942, the whole British Empire seemed at stake because of Stalin's military bungling. While Stalin felt betrayed by Churchill over the promise of a second front, Churchill doubted Stalin's ability to hold out against Hitler. Without trust, the alliance was doomed. Churchill felt that he and Stalin had to meet face to face. In the middle of August 1942, after a long flight dodging German fighters, Churchill arrived in Moscow. Churchill was excited to meet Stalin for the first time and keen to get the measure of the man. But he was also anxious. He was about to give Stalin an update on the Second Front that wouldn't be welcome. It was, he said, like carrying a large lump of ice to the North Pole. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Welcome back to Timeline Tapes. We're rejoining as Winston Churchill meets Stalin face-to-face -face for the first time to establish trust between their alliance. At seven that evening, Churchill was ushered into Stalin's office. First impressions were not flattering. At the door was a bald, nervous dwarf 
actually Stalin's secretary, Alexander Poskrobyshev. And Stalin himself didn't look particularly impressive. Attired as usual in lilac tunic, baggy trousers and long boots. This was actually standard Communist Party dress. But to the British, he looked a bit of a yokel. For Stalin, a gangster from the Caucasus, used to manipulating cronies and underlings, having to negotiate with a grandee from the West, face to face and on equal terms, was a new experience. A first test, if you like, of his ability to play in the Premier League of international diplomacy. And I think that the records of his meetings with Churchill throw a revealing light on Stalin's effectiveness as a statesman, as he learnt to manage Russia's wartime alliances for his own ends. To start with, the meeting was heavy going. Stalin admitted that the news from the Caucasus was bad. Churchill spoke defensively about all the problems of mounting a second front in France that year. Stalin looked grim. What about a smaller operation, he asked, like recapturing the Channel Islands? Churchill said it would be a waste of seed corn for the real harvest, which would come in 1943. Stalin, who was used to wasting tons of seed corn, replied testily, a man who isn't prepared to take risks cannot win a war. But then Churchill revealed that he and the American president, Franklin Roosevelt, had a top-secret plan which would be every bit as good as a second-front offensive against mainland Europe. He drew a sketch of a crocodile. Northern France, he said, was Hitler's hard snout, but the Mediterranean was his soft belly. Churchill promised that in the autumn, British and American troops would land in Morocco and Algeria. If North Africa was won in 1942, he said, we will launch a deadly attack on Hitler next year. Stalin was now fully engaged. He asked a lot of questions. The meeting broke up after three and a half hours. The British Prime Minister was driven back to the Dutcher he had been assigned. Churchill was jubilant. My strategy was sound, he crowed. First, he'd given Stalin the bad news. Then he'd offered glad tidings. Stalin, he said, ended enthusiastic, in a glow. Churchill declared that Stalin was just a peasant whom he knew exactly how to handle. Too late, Churchill was warned that the room had promptly been bugged and that his comments might well be passed on to Stalin. But Churchill wasn't cowed, stalking up to the likely location of a microphone and shouting, the Russians, I have been told, are not human beings at all. They are lower in the scale of nature than the orangutan. Now, let them take that down and translate it into Russian. It was a strange echo of Churchill's spluttering 20 years earlier about Bolshevik baboonery. Whether his bombast got back to Stalin, we don't know but the next meeting between the two leaders was very different. Perhaps Stalin felt insulted by Churchill's taunts, or maybe he'd seen through the so-called second front in the Mediterranean. The evidence isn't clear, but Stalin now played the hard man. Sitting back in his chair, eyes half-closed, puffing at his pipe, he tore Churchill to shreds. 
He dismissed North Africa as an irrelevance. He accused Churchill of breaking a firm promise about the Second Front. He even mocked the British for cowardice. If the British army had been fighting the Germans as much as the Russian army, it wouldn't be so frightened of them. Churchill was livid. He shouted back, giving as good as he got. The second meeting ended in icy deadlock. Next day at the Dutcher, Churchill fumed in the garden, safely out of range of the bugs. That man has insulted me. From now on, he will have to fight his battles alone. I represent a great country, and I am not submissive by nature. This was no longer a policy dispute, a row about the Second Front. It was a clash of cultures between two proud men representing two proud nations. Each desperately needed the other, but there was a limit to how far either of them would bend. Unlike Stalin, Churchill wasn't surrounded by lackeys. The British ambassador, Sir Archibald Clark Carr, talked back at Churchill hard. In a letter later, he recalled how he asked Churchill bluntly whether he intended to flounce off home. All because you are offended. Offended by a peasant who didn't know any better. You are an aristocrat. They are rough and inexperienced, straight from the plough and the lathe. Don't let your pride blur your judgment. Noblesse oblige. That was the message. Clark Carr urged Churchill to unbend and asked Stalin for another talk. But would Stalin unbend as well? In fact, for Stalin, the ground was also shifting. He had just learned that the Germans had routed Soviet troops on the Don River. Stalingrad, the great industrial city named after the Man of Steel himself, was now in Hitler's sights. Round three between Stalin and Churchill began at seven in the evening in Stalin's office. The two leaders had a polite and businesslike final discussion about various aspects of the war. But as Churchill got up to say goodbye, Stalin became Mr. Nice Guy all of a sudden. Why don't you come back to my apartment in the Kremlin and have a little drink, hmm? The little drink mushroomed into dinner with a dictator, a six-hour feast washed down with endless bottles of choice wine. Stalin introduced Churchill to his daughter Svetlana and watched his reaction with a twinkle in his eye, as if to say, you see, even we Bolsheviks have family life. The mood became progressively more unreal as conversation lurched from the present to the past. Churchill boasted about the military genius of his ancestor, the Duke of Marlborough. Stalin, with an impish smile, said he thought the Duke of Wellington was more talented because he crushed Napoleon, who presented the greatest danger in history. Then Stalin got on to the collective farms campaign and the criminal resistance of the peasants. It was, he said, a terrible struggle. Ten million people, all very bad and difficult, but necessary. He hacked at a pig's head, picking at the flesh with his fingers. Churchill had a vivid image of millions of men and women being blotted out forever but he held his tongue. With 
the world war going on all around us, it seemed vain to moralize aloud. This final meeting cemented the alliance. Churchill left Moscow with a new confidence in Stalin. On the plane home next morning, nursing a massive hangover, he murmured, I was taken into the family. We ended friends. Of Joseph Stalin, the Prime Minister has brought back an excellent impression of a great rugged war chief, blunt of speech with a saving sense of humour. The two formed a friendship which promises well for the victory of the United Nations. In the course of the war, Churchill's view of the Soviet Union and the threat of what he called Russian barbarism would yo-yo up and down, but he retained his faith that Stalin was a man with whom he could do business. For his part, Stalin had played a shrewd game of hot and cold with Churchill, knocking him off balance. This was a routine Stalin ploy. But I believe there was something more behind his Mr Nice Guy act when he invited Churchill back into his flat. Stalin, I think, made a deliberate decision to open up, to show a more human side. The bruiser had to become a charmer. He couldn't afford to let the meeting end on a sour note because Russia's military situation had gone critical. The Caucasus and Russian oil fields now seemed within Hitler's grasp. The decisive battle would be in the cauldron of Stalingrad, where two million Soviet and German troops became locked in a struggle to the death. Churchill's much-vaunted offensive in the Mediterranean, landing 100,000 troops on the beaches of North Africa, was a mere sideshow to this horrific climax of the war. Having failed to wipe Leningrad and Moscow off the map, Hitler was now determined to erase Stalingrad. His orders were stark, male population to be destroyed, female to be deported. Hitler was becoming ever more the control freak as supreme commander. But Stalin, the man of steel who'd bent towards Churchill, was also learning to be less rigid in dealing with his generals. Swallowing his old fear of Bonapartism in the army, Stalin dismantled the system of political commissars, the apparatchiks who could question officers' orders on party or ideological grounds. Now, commanders were allowed to take decisions for military reasons alone. Party hacks like Voroshilov were demoted, while Stalin promoted Zhukov to deputy supreme commander. Zhukov knew the fate of Stalin's generals. At first, he tried to refuse the promotion, claiming that their temperaments were incompatible. But Stalin was insistent. Let us subordinate our temperaments to the interests of the motherland. Zhukov wasn't just a one-man band. Around him, he built a capable staff of intelligent and efficient planners. This was a decisive moment, a sign that Stalin had the essential flexibility to survive. In 1941, Stalin had appealed to nationalism, not communism, in order to galvanise his people for war. In 1942, he compromised again, scrapping the ideology of party control to give his top generals the freedom to fight. While Russian soldiers battled heroically in the ruins of Stalingrad, Zhukov and his staff formulated a bold plan to relieve the city. And Stalin let them do it finally releasing the reserves he'd retained to protect Moscow 
and not pushing Zhukov this time into a premature assault. In November 1942, the pincers closed again, but they were Russian pincers, slicing through weak divisions that guarded the rear of Hitler's army in Stalingrad. It was the Germans who were now encircled. Their final surrender in January 1943 coincided with the 10th anniversary of Hitler's seizure of power. It was a devastating turn of fortune's wheel. War correspondent Vasily Grossman witnessed the Russian victory. Prisoners move on and on in crowds, their mess tins rattling, belted with pieces of rope or wire. Russian troops are marching. Their spirits are higher now. Ah, oh, it would be great to get to Kiev. Another man. Ah, oh, I'd like to get to Berlin. The Red Army was now on the march. So were the British and Americans by the end of 1942, routing the Germans in North Africa as a springboard for control of the Mediterranean. But it was the Eastern Front, the great battles for Moscow and Stalingrad, that turned World War II, beginning a fight back that would eventually entrench the Soviet Union as a new superpower throughout Eastern Europe. Not just Poland and the Baltic states, but Hungary, Czechoslovakia, and half of Germany itself. The Second World War was a struggle to defeat Hitler's genocidal imperialism. Yet the man who gained most from victory was a dictator as cruel and ruthless as his enemy. The difference between victory and defeat was in large part that Stalin eventually learned from the mistakes that had cost millions of Russian lives. Whereas setbacks only made Hitler more unyielding in his fantasies. Ultimately, Stalin, for all his Bolshevik ideology, was a pragmatist with a keen eye for survival. Although he was an outsider, his command over the Russian people gained him an empire bought with their blood that surpassed anything won by the Tsars. So there was a ghastly moral compromise at the heart of the Allied victory. In 1945, the defeat of one evil helped entrench another evil across half of Europe and in Russia itself. Having learnt to loosen up his regime to win victory, after the war, Stalin tightened his grip once again, reverting to terror. He put his generals back in their place, demoting the war hero Zhukov on charges of corruption. And he clamped down on his people with renewed censorship and another purge of the party. In the 1950s, Vasily Grossman pondered the cost of victory, reflecting on how the heroism of the war had saved Russia while also saving Stalin and shoring up the Stalinist system. His epic novel, Life and Fate, was modelled on Tolstoy's War and Peace. At the fulcrum of his book, Grossman evokes Stalin waiting anxiously for the start of Zhukov's vital counter-offensive around Stalingrad. The passage is pure fiction, but also, I think, sublime poetic truth. Grossman imagines the dictator recalling the shambles of 1941, his bumblings that nearly ruined Russia. In his mind's eye, behind Hitler's tanks, Stalin sees the millions of Russians he destroyed coming back to life, the prisoners of the Arctic Gulag breaking up through the permafrost, emaciated peasants crawling out of the soil, all of them looking for him. Then Zhukov's pincers close. The Germans cannot escape. 
Stalingrad will be remembered as a triumph, not a disaster. Grossman now imagines Stalin's devoted secretary, bald little Poskrobyshev, whose wife was one of Stalin's victims, watching silent and motionless as his boss sits back, drinking in the wonderful news. To the victor, the spoils. This was his hour of triumph. He'd not only defeated his current enemy, he had defeated his past. In the villages, the grass would grow thicker over the tombs of 1930. The snow and ice of the Arctic Circle would remain dumb and silent. He knew better than anybody that no one condemns a victor. Very slowly and gently, his eyes closed, he repeated the words of a song. You're caught in the net, my pretty little bird. I won't let you go for anything in the world. Oskrabyshev looked at Stalin at his grey, thinning hair, his pockmarked face, his closed eyes. Suddenly, he felt the ends of his fingers grow cold. Thanks for listening to Timeline Tapes. That's it for our two-parter on The Man of Steel. Tune in next week for the start of a new story on the history of Carthage. In the meantime, if you can't wait to learn more, just head to our YouTube channel, where we have hundreds of documentaries you can watch. If you want to reach out to Timeline Tapes, you can email us at timeline at little.studios.com. And you can also follow us on Instagram and Facebook. Those are both at TimelineWH. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe, give us a five-star rating, and write a review too. I've been Nate Fisher. This has been Timeline Tapes. Let's go down in history together. Confidence starts with loving who you are. And when your skin feels nourished and glows on the outside, you naturally radiate confidence from the inside. Give your skin a glow up with Osea's clinically proven Mega Moisture Duo. This ultra-hydrating body care features two of Osea's bestsellers, Andaria Algae Body Oil and Andaria Collagen Body Lotion. These seaweed-powered heroes use skincare-level ingredients normally reserved for your face for results you can see and confidence you can feel. Osea has been making clean, clinically proven seaweed-infused face and body care products for over 28 years. This luxurious skincare is vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Glow from the inside out. Get 10% off your first order with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A malibu.com, code GLOW. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.